Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. In the preface to their 1798 lyrical ballads, Wordsworth and Coleridge remind us that it is the honorable characteristic of poetry that its materials are to be found in every subject which can interest the human mind. The evidence of this fact, they go on, is to be sought not in the writing of critics, but in those of the poets themselves. I'm excited to be joined today by Brad Johnson, just such a poet who finds something of interest in every subject that presents itself to the human mind in his excellent book, Smuggling Elephants Through Airport Security. Thanks for tuning in. Nothing is off limits in smuggling elephants through airport security. This ultimately American text positions big ideas in public spaces, often discovering the absurdity and humor in such connections. Johnson makes poetry of the dizzying influences affecting the post-postmodern American, skipping whimsically from the Pixies to Plato's allegory of the cave, from the Confederate flag to unisex public toilets. From eggplant emojis to Vladimir Putin stealing Robert Kraft's Super Bowl ring. Rich in voice and character, smuggling elephants through airport security collects observations that provide a succinct feel for the 21st century American zeitgeist. Brad Johnson's first full-length poetry collection, The Happiness Theory, was published in 2013, and his work has appeared in Atlanta Review, Hayden's Ferry Review, J Journal, and a whole host of other publications. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. Hope you're doing well up in Michigan. Yeah, me too. It's great to hear from you from Florida. So there's a poem in your collection titled Faithless and Virtuous Night, and in it you have this description of the rejection slips you've received for your work. And I thought it would be an interesting place to start because there's something in that description that I think really resonates with the collection overall. And it's these editors telling you, you know, there aren't enough poetic moments. The language isn't highfalutin enough. These are charges that, you know, Wordsworth and Coleridge faced. And it's interesting to see them repeated around familiar language and accessible topics. What do you suppose it is about that kind of writing that turns off the editors of little magazines? I can't understand why people want to be you know, doorkeepers, keeping language out. David Foster Wallace tells a story about being in graduate school and his teacher telling him, you shouldn't write books with cars in them because no good novel ever contain cars. And the idea that, you know, there's material that should be an art or should not be an art. These decisions, I think, were made during the postmodern period where value was deemed arbitrary. If everything is value less than something has value for someone. And for someone to tell anyone, your ideas are not poetry. I just have the confidence enough to know that that authority, that opinion is flat out wrong. And I know that Whitman would have my back. I know that certainly the romantics would have my back. I'm comfortable with that company. It's interesting that it comes down to the level of language too. Like there's something about the conversational or, or indeed approachable tone of most of your poems that seems like it signals to editors that they're not operating in some realm that we would think of as the mountain of poetry? Well, it's about audience. The idea that poetry, you know, this is always an argument. Who is poetry for? 
right? William Carlos Williams versus T.S. Eliot. William Carlos Williams lost because he was, in a sense, a populist. And the academy said, no, 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 we're going to put this back in the classroom. Yeah, it's interesting that you pick Williams because he has such a broad afterlife on social media now. Like, I mean, you see almost every couple of weeks someone is returning to the plums in the icebox or the red wheelbarrow. Well, what about the poem about like people die every day for, you know, the things that are in poems? I mean, we went through a period where people thought that poetry was irrelevant, right? But poetry helps us understand the world that we're living in. And right now, nobody can. Thank God for Amanda Gorman that the, she exactly expressed the frustration and hope of, I think, many Americans. And it's always the same struggle, right? I got bored with Star Wars because then the next three were the same thing and it's the same battle. But in the postmodern period, we got bored of the forms because we saw how they were manipulated. But I think in the end, it's always a battle about good and evil. Every generation's got to do that again. Every generation's got to fight fascism. It's boring. I'm interested to hear you mention poetic form. One of the poems I asked you to think about reading for today is a, is a sonnet. I almost wonder if we should read that now and then talk a little bit about formalism. Right. Because formalism, many people jump to free verse. But if you don't know the form, what are you jumping to? You don't know what free verse, right? There's benefits in both forms. In the conversation of the sonnet, of what is the sonnet? I've read prose poems that were called sonnets. Yeah, and that they still cling to this idea that there's some kind of rigid structural expectation that they're working with or against as a way of signaling the category they belong to and the kind of work they're trying to do. Right, I'm subverting the form. That's not the form. Subverting the form is not no longer the form, <laughs> right? So I think what I've got here is iambic quatrameter. Uh, I think it's Shakespearean, but I've tried to put, again, everyday language in it. Zen in the art of blowing off friends. We aren't climbing Everest or hiking Calcutta or dropping out from the door of an open plain, just off-road biking or loitering inside the Apple store. But when Harold joins, he always complains about the heat or his health unravels, which happens whenever we're hit with rain. Harold says he never needs to travel. He'd rather stay home sipping Chianti than go out for a beer or a game. He swears heaven's his porch in Ypsilanti, and if he found heaven, why would he leave? We're all going to die, once tried to push. You're right, he replied, but there's no rush. I love how apparent and yet sort of elusive the form is there as you say there's there's a sort of iambic pulse underneath it there's rhymes there's half rhymes but it's submerged and it feels almost accidental because the language is so approachable and so akin to what we're familiar with you know people talking to each other we're all going to die you're right he replied but there's no rush like that sounds like something someone would actually say that's the goal Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. I wonder if you could speak on that. Like, how do you approach writing in form while trying to maintain, you know, some semblance of what language really sounds like? Well, for me, that's the real interesting thing to take older forms and put contemporary language in it. That's the fun for me. 
And then people realize later, oh, it's a sonnet. And then they realize I'm a genius. And it's like, I'm trying to tell you that. <laughs> Is there something about the old forms that, you know, another aspect of your poetry that's evident throughout Smuggling Elephants is the political context, the socio-political context of its composition. Is there something about the forms that makes grappling with those kind of larger concerns more palatable or more tenable? Well, when you use forms, they're historical texts. So by using a form, you're putting yourself in this larger narrative. And I think that we're constantly fighting over narratives in a socio-political sense. We're constantly arguing who has the authority over the language, right? Down here in Florida, if we talk about the Confederate flag, people that say that's not racist are not minorities. It's always white people that are saying that's not racist. And we're still living in a time where white people get to define racism. You no longer get that. I'm white. I don't get to, if some, if some minority feels offended and I deny that, I'm just, again, historical authority of language. You don't get to use that language. I think what's interesting to me is, as I imagine a poet thinks, looking at kind of the history of literature, the way that these forms have developed and become sort of ossified over time, the way that they come to stand for in that introduction to the lyrical ballads, Wordsworth and Coleridge make the same point. Like there's something about the way one accumulates authority and good taste unto oneself by demonstrating their familiarity with form, you know, to be able to say, look, I know what a sonnet is. It's, you know, this many lines, this many rhymes, words positioned in this order is a way of accumulating authority over language. But here you're saying it's, or in your book, it's being used to subvert other kinds of authority, which I think is an interesting move. I think I'm trying to do both. And I have an iconoclastic approach. And I think that that is where poetry, that's where a voice like mine belongs. Poetry allows me to say things that would no longer, I mean, when you talk about free speech, I think poetry is the last realm of that. I did an interview with NPR and they asked me about Twitter, right? And the idea, uh, Trump, you know, said that he was the, the Shakespeare of Twitter, but it's all spelled wrong. Confefe, you know, that's not, I mean, is that poetry? Again, we're talking about five dimensional chess being checkers and, you know, people need to stay in their lane. LeBron James just dribbled the ball. I would argue when Donald Trump said he was the Shakespeare of Twitter, he got in the realm of poetry. And that was not his lane. He tried to be the authority of language, and he is not. He also failed to recognize that drill is the Shakespeare of Twitter. Nobody knows the meaning of the language they're using. That's really scary. Yeah. And so poetry is an, offers an attempt to get back to that language or to... Well, the, 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 the worst thing you can do as an artist, I think the worst thing you can do as a poet, is not write the truth. We're all very confused, but we all agree on certain truths. I'm an atheist. I can agree with Joe Biden as a Catholic about lots of things. And you and I have the ability to do that without fear. And in America, I think if you don't have understanding of the language, exploring ideas can be a minefield. 
feel like this is one of the places where I wonder if that's one of the things that you feel like form is allowing you in your work, because if you have the freedom of knowing that the language has to be arranged in a particular way, you can then apply it to subjects that are more challenging or that are more difficult to understand, more tentative, more exploratory, because you're fulfilling requirements of using the language according to some system or other. Well, and I don't have to invent the rules, right? I know that if I use a sestina, I need 10 lines. And then I need the repetition of the lines to, you know, the second time you hear that, it needs to have a double meaning, a different meaning than the first time. So each, it's, they're all systems, just like Twitter. You figure out how to work Twitter. You figure out how to use the Sistina. But then, you know, you have to drop it before you just start imitating yourself. I wonder if we could think a little bit about how this experimentation with form and attempt to use language in some you know, given way or other facilitates the vast breadth of subject matter that's in the book. I mean, there's, as I said in the introduction, it really is the case. There's everything here from breast implants to Grand Theft Auto, Bill O'Reilly and Tom Petty. How do these things kind of present themselves to your consciousness as a poet, you know, in your writing process? I try to consume as much as I can. You know, I think it's always worth keeping an eye on popular culture because that's a language. You know, whether I like it or not, the number one movie of America, you know, that's tied with me. We are tied to what happens in our shared culture. I think you have to watch that because that's in the consciousness. So that is the material. It's all material. And so I think that you can only produce material based on what you consume. So I really try to consume as much art as I can because when I need to create, I want to have as much in my barrel. And I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to provide the same analogy. I don't want to provide the same simile. I've done that before. I come up with a great idea and then I use it in two poems and I don't realize it until later. It's like, oh, it's not that good. Is there anything that's off limits for poetry? I love that question. I mean, that's where it gets scary. You know, what am I willing to confess? And when it comes to where am I willing to go? I think I'm willing to go anywhere because I know who I am and I'm not going to freak out in any space. And I think if I can analyze how I consume material, I think I can pretty much accurately describe how material is consumed by other people. That's a human experience. And that's where I think we start. I use humor because humor is funny and humor is fun and humor is a good way to accept the truth. I mean, if you watch Chris Rock stand up, it's funny, but it's also pretty dark. Like his stuff on healthcare, it's funny. Why is it funny? It's true. There's no money in the cure. There's money in the medicine and the upkeep and the repair. So I think, I mean, you talked about the romantics. The goal is truth. It's always truth. And truth is not good or bad. And so I'm, you know, I would write anything, but then I would read it before I shared anybody. You'd mentioned thinking about like the audience's perspective. And I sort of have that kind of notion of a shared culture, like the the number one bestseller in America is our number one bestseller in America sort of thing. Is working with that familiar material, you know, whether it's 
Guantanamo Bay or the latest MCU installment. Is that a way of reaching an audience atypical of poetry? Or is it a way of bringing a kind of insular audience for poetry in closer contact with what poetry could do in that larger cultural context? So I sort of reverse it. I think everything is in poetry and you need to bring people in so they realize that. Because poetry is what? Basically the best way to express something concisely. I would argue the best writers are poets. They can take big ideas and present it in small ideas. I mentioned David Foster Wallace. Is there one word I would take out of infinite jest? No. And for yet, but not one of those words would I take out. I think that the great poets, they can say the thing in the, in the most concise way. And frankly, let's face it, it's the perfect thing for the 21st century. If I could give you the essence of a five-page essay in a haiku, and I think it could easily be done, man, but it's got to be good. It can't just be everything you write as a haiku. <laughs> I wonder, Brad, if we could read Northern Aggression at this point and think a little bit about distilling ideas or positions into you know, poetic terms. Well, and I think I'd, I'd also mention audience, right? And, you know, certainly this poem is about, you know, it references the Civil War, it, you know, the question of is America a racist country? So in this poem, I know who my audience is not, and I'm comfortable with that. I think if you pick sides. Nonetheless, this is Northern Aggression. Like rainbow trout caught in overfish waters for the good of the habitat and fishermen who may come after, we let it off the hook. We've been hearing the same arguments since Appomattox. Words are only light. What's needed now is fire to finally end the Civil War and rid ourselves of anti-federalist states' rights fundamentalists. The older generation won't like it, but this older generation is the problem. We will solve by federalizing New York State's tuition-free college proposals so kids can stay in state and get a university education or travel to New York, California, Michigan, and get an out-of-state education for the same cost. Kids will leave the South and the country will blend, diversify as kids from Brooklyn, Bloomfield Hills, and Brentwood, happy to get away from home, will spend four years in South Carolina. Mississippi or Arkansas before getting the hell out. And when native Southerners graduate from Northern schools, they'll never go back to thinking the planet's 10,000 years old or that climate change is liberal propaganda or that Jesus rode a pterodactyl or that corporations are people who deserve voting rights or that deist rhetoric of the founding father presupposes they intended the United States to be a Christian nation in perpetuity or that economic segregation is not planned segregation or that a free market will regulate itself, or that there's no need for black entertainment television since there's no white entertainment television, as though ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC are not monopolized white entertainment television conglomerate where sitcoms set in New York City lack any black characters, much less actors, or that one's sexual history dictates one's sexual identity, or that the NRA isn't a business front for a terrorist organization, or that feminism is an encroachment on male sovereignty, or that the Confederate flag is suitable to present anywhere other than in a rebel museum or a Dixieland cemetery. This is a real corker of a poem. Nice. Thank you. It fires on all cylinders, as they say. 
there's that Whitmanian kind of here we have the opposite of the concision of the sonnet. Here we have the sort of exploding and, and spiraling panorama of language trying to encompass all of the different aspects of you know what's packed into a term like northern aggression or the way that we think about the civil war from a variety of perspectives not all of which are equally valid i wonder if you could talk about that because i there's something interesting around you know this particular poem and as you said at the outset you know you know who your audience isn't or you know sort of how a particular audience is going to resist a poem like this one i don't mean to keep thinking of the romantics, but I'm thinking of, you know, Shelley's idea about poets as the unacknowledged legislators. This is a particularly rhetorical poem. Is that something that you undertake with a purpose? Yeah. The legislator, what is true, what is just, what is not. And certainly romantics, I love. I'm a big Don Juan fan. Byron is uh, a big favorite of mine and his humor and his sense of form, just the Don Juan is so beautiful, and it insults everyone. And those have always been authors that I like, the Byrons, or let's go out and insult. I mean, poetry is where you can do that. Poetry is the power. I don't have money. So what is my authority? That ultimately gives me authority. Is it limited, though, if you talked about Gorman reading at the inauguration, and every time we have a poet read at the inauguration, we have this moment where suddenly everyone cares about poetry. And indeed, it, it is said nowadays that poetry has a bigger audience than ever, that it's present in our media consumption more than it's still got to be good. Yeah. And it's, it's not always good. No, and it and it's and it's always Gorman was good. I would say that all the, the, the there's not. All the, 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 the readers, all the poems have not been good, right? And it's not their fault. They don't get a lot of choice. They're told what? They're given like two weeks. They had them, they're really, really edited. So it's not a, hey, man, get out there and do your thing. It is a, you have a form to do. And what Gorman, I thought, did was what? She's 23 years old. You know, she's probably five foot two, 100 pounds, black girl. And she just, again, the authority, she blew the socks off of it, right? So where does her authority come from? It's the word, it's the truth. And all that other stuff, all that marketing, does she deserve to be on Vogue? Yeah. But I mean, is that what you have to do to write poetry? For me, the original text is always the thing. You know, I don't need a PhD because I can read the original text. I don't want to read the secondary stuff as much. I would rather just sit on my own interpretation. But then can you communicate to people? Can I communicate to 18, 20, 25-year-olds, 40-year-olds who are coming back to school? You know, if you go too far in there, all of a sudden, you're the weirdo at CVS. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Brad Johnson, author of Smuggling Elephants Through Airport Security. I feel like we're kind of, we're picking around this issue and, I, and I'm trying to find ways of articulating it so that the resonance between that sort of reading a poem at the inaugural and the kinds of issues or circumstances that the book deals with, you know, even the title, Smuggling Elephants Through Airport Security, comes from this moment where the speaker is encountering the state, you know, where you're in the security line at the airport and you, maybe you've got something that's contraband or that could be in, interpreted as contraband. And so you're in this position where some utterance or other, you know, might have consequences for you. 
and the the state of the union or excuse me the inauguration is this moment where you you talked about editorial constrictions on her when she's preparing that poem there's also sort of like the onus of history right this is the inaugural poem and so it has to fulfill a certain function you know it's got to do more than just rhyme and have 14 lines in iambic pentameter it's got to speak for some semblance of the nation or what we interpret to be the nation I'm coming back to Northern aggression as a kind of rhetorical moment of its own, although one, you know, as, as you were saying earlier, slightly more free from those kind of grand historical pressures. It's also a policy poem. It suggests, right? And that's, you know, William Carlos Williams, you know, his last book, well, not his last book, but Patterson is unreadable if you don't know how to read postmodernism. It's a jumble, a mulligan stew, and beautiful. It's spectacular. Is it accessible to everybody? No. And that's really what your, I mean, Northern Aggression is a poem that, you know, however much they might not like it, some son of Dixie could read and understand what your point is. That's right. Disagree with it. Tell me it's not true. But again, the idea, what, what would happen if we would nationalize universities? And I'm in Florida. I want to go to Michigan. I'm in Florida. I want to go to Cal Berkeley. And if it costs the same as University of Florida, all of a sudden, now we've got a national university system. Yeah. I think that sort of policy argument is not common, even in temporary poetry, which is maybe the root of the question. Right. And so I love the idea that this is not poetry. I'm fascinated with that idea because it is. And it is because ugly things are beautiful. It's all contradiction. It's all paradoxes. And poetry, we're comfortable in that space. Poets are comfortable in the paradoxical, in the perhaps more than, and that's perhaps why people need to read more poetry. So they understand it's not either or. You can subsist with both, right? You can be fat Buddha or you can be thin Buddha, or you can be both. It's interesting that you mentioned the fat Buddha and the thin Buddha there, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, you read earlier, Zen and the Art of Blowing Off Friends. There's a lot of Buddhism through the text. Would you be willing to talk about your relationship to Buddhism? Well, I define myself as atheist, but I have an interest in literature. I have an interest in history. I have an interest in, you know, why do people believe what they do? Uh, So I've tried to consume as much religious text as I can. My Torah is next to my Quran, is next to my grandfather's Bible, is next to my copy of the Upanishads, is ne- right? So I think, again, it's all material. It's all a search for truth. Buddhism, I find, is Emerson, right? I am not my body. Whitman is, I am my body. You know, these are American ideas. People struggle with that identity today. They figured it out in the antebellum period of, of this country. You either are your body or you are not your body. And again, that's all identity conversation that we have today. Yeah. And there's a fair bit about identities and bodies in the book. Because I I think that that's all we're talking about today. I mean, we talk about identity politics, but politics doesn't have the diction to talk about identity. Identity is all about authority. Who tells you what you are? And in poetry, nobody. So you have the freedom to explore. And if you have a bad idea, That's not your fault. Where'd it come from? The society in which you live. Can we root out bad ideas with precise language? Yes. 
I mean, again, I think that the exposing the bad idea is, you know, the Jonathan Swiftian, let's eat Irish children. First, you get the people that agree that the bad idea is a good idea. They're obviously guilty. Like the, the lawyer interviewing, uh, he was, no, he was prosecuting. He was uh, prosecuting a teacher saying, why don't you teach the good, the bad, and the ugly of slavery? And she said, you know, there is no good of slavery. <laughs> so the presuppositions that we're dealing with, even with language, uh, Barack Obama, for example, of identity, right? Our first black president. But of course, he's biracial. But could he have decided to identify as white? Society would not have let him. You know, this makes me think about a poem in your book called Meeting Osama, which is about the speaker encountering like a school age child whose name is Osama post 9-11. And I think about all of the sort of right wing rhetoric around Barack Hussein Obama and the insistence on pronouncing his full given name as though it were in itself a condemnation of the man. There's something there about language, too. Right. I can use your name against you. Oh, it's horrible. It's gross. But I think that there's ways of having these conversations. I've had students who, when having this conversation about, you know, going through the TSA, you know, who's going to have less of a time going? I have a big mouth, so I always get in trouble going through TSA. But your regular 44-year-old white guy, he's going right through, right? And then I've got my students. He travels. His name is... I literally, I had a student whose name was Muhammad and his father's name was Hussein. And the whole class laughed with him about the obvious truthful struggle he must have going through TSA. And it's funny because it's so true, but it's also tragic and disgusting and bigoted. But I think on a human level, we can all sort of share that experience. It's all stupid. It's all dumb that type of bigotry and stereotypes. But just because it's dumb doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to you on a daily basis. And that's where the frustration and the anger comes from. Well, and justifiably so. I feel like that's one of our privileges as white men. You know, like I don't know going into a situation like TSA that my name is going to have those kinds of behavioral consequences. That's right. That's right. But I would also say the language, right? When we were talking about my poem, Northern Aggression, you were, you were talking about the idea that it, there is an aggression to it. But there's a, a Frederick Douglass reference there where he said, we need fire, not light. And his argument is, you're going to come at me because of the language that I use, right? And so I think that, you know, the idea that a poem can be aggressive, yes, it can. But think about American aggression, the idea that we're more offended with language than like death. And I deny that, right? I go back and forth. Do I believe that the word is the strongest thing? Yes. Do I also believe that it's completely meaningless and no one cares? Yes. Or that those battles over language and who can say what to whom and in what context are all a proxy for like actual real violence and conflict. Totally. I agree with that. I think that was actually very, that, that was, that was poetic. <laughs> well, it is. It's all a proxy war, right? I wonder if at this point we could have you read your poem, Shaken Not Stirred, which is sort of touches on some of these ideas of language as a kind of proxy conflict for other things. Well, I think Shaken Not Stirred is this idea of everything 
historical, political happening at once on your dinner table. And so in very, very real, real ways, I think our immediate interaction every day is proxy wars. All right, so shaken, not stirred. Driving home, my wife reminds me of what my mother always said. Don't talk about politics or religion and polite company, but how can I not? When I ask what's for dinner, the response is always singed. Vegetarian lasagna, free-range chicken, Kobe beef, foie gras, hummus, shark steak, venison, quinoa. There's even a difference between tap water and bottled. Maybe the hosts have separate refrigerators, one for meat, one for dairy. Maybe the husband cooks. Maybe the wife drinks potato vodka, or there's bacon served or bacon not served. When Jeffrey showed up late, how could I not ask what happened? And when he said he walked, how could I not follow up with, why would you walk this time of night, this time of year? Though I knew any answer he'd supply would be dogmatic or political, like he didn't own a car and his bicycle had a flat tire or it was Shabbat or he was protesting a prisoner's release. What answer could there possibly be, asked my wife, as I turn off our highway exit that wouldn't seep into the dark corners of socially accepted conversation? It's a beautiful night, she says, while placing her left hand on mine and pushing the automatic window button with the other. It's a beautiful night, she repeats, as wind lifts her hair like balloons released from a net at a rally. Thank you for that. I, I'm glad that we picked that one to read here because it does, as you said in the little intro that you gave, really encapsulate so much of what's going on with the book, like noticing things that we tend not to pay attention to recognizing that even in the language we use to talk about them are encapsulated all of these different political commitments, concerns, arguments, histories, and bringing them out to consider, you know, in your own precise language. I'm thinking about that opening stanza where every one of those words means something in addition to what it means. Vegetarian lasagna signals a whole raft of political commitments. Kobe beef, you know, you have this whole aesthetic global marketplace packed into this one, you know, little image. And that's William Carlos Williams, right? That's the wheelbarrow. Yeah. And I'm sort of seeing like everything's the wheelbarrow now. One thing that I I actually wrote this in the margin, so I'm going to ask it because I it occurred to me while reading the book that one of the one of the things that it does is it presents poetic sensibility as one of noticing these things is, as you've talked about here, consuming as much as you can and noticing interrelations and putting things in conflict and trying to remember, you know, forgotten histories and, and other sorts of things. I, th- I think it's a fairly common poetic sensibility, or at least a lot of poets that I've talked to, you know, have a similar kind of approach. Do you think that that sensibility makes living with others more difficult? Oh, totally, man. Totally. Like I'm told all the time I shouldn't think as much. And I accept that. But like, if you don't think, then other people think for you and you end up in a fascist society. You know, I, I, we could do a Foucault analysis of our Mexican takeout menu, right? There are people that laugh at that. Most people don't. There are people that, and again, you have to negotiate who your audience is, right? I'm not going to make an OED joke when I'm hanging out with, you know, the football players. Me and my buddy went to a Boston Red Sox Marlins game and we were talking about Lolita. And I said out loud in the outfield, it is the most beautiful book about pedophilia ever written. And two dudes turned around. It's like, what was that? And it's like, oh, I forgot I'm not in an English department. I'm in a baseball game. 
reading Lolita at the Red Sox game. Well, we were talking about Lolita. We were talking about that opening Lolita. The she is uh, Dolores on the dotted line. Well, the, your question was, how do you function? Like, how do you function? So the idea of you know you can't make a living as a poet unless you want to do the marketing thing and be Allen Ginsberg, and you could probably do that now. You know, I like teaching. I like getting in front of a classroom of kids that don't know anything and then just erasing their sense of self and then allowing them to rebuild themselves as confident individuals. I think that's cool. I get turned on reading new things, uh, learning new things. So for me, like the question is, if you're not creating something, what are you doing? If you have a job, right, in America, we define ourselves by our jobs. But poet's not a job. It's something that you do. If you make music and you make art for money, other than reasons, then I want to search for truth. Like it's a job. Nobody wants a job, do they? Not that I'm aware of, but. Right. I think we all would love just somebody to pay us to sit around and think. The problem is so many of us haven't done the reading we all think that we should be paid to sit around and think, well, what, what contents are you going to provide to me? Like I saw the Kardashians. I saw the summary. I don't need your summary. Like I got that. What else you got? People don't look outside themselves too much anymore. Do they? It's that sort of myopic. This is my opinion. And the truth is in the melding of all the different perspectives. I think you, I mean, that in an interesting way makes a, a solid case, not just for your book, but for poetry more generally as a as an attempt to combat that sort of malaise, as an attempt to s- combat fast culture and infinite consumption with something that asks for more attention. Right. And in, in the Buddhist sense, like we're all present right here now. What do we bring to the right here now? Like we've been talking about what I bring. I've consumed a lot. So when we come to a thing, you and I, or somebody who hasn't consumed as much, like, are we, do we, do we experience a thing in the same way? Do I have to be patient while they figure it out? Right? Like, we're, I mean, I think our countries, we're sort of sitting around waiting for people to realize that Q was a bunch of idiots and they've been fooled and they've been hosed. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's there, you know, this is a whole other subject, but I feel like there's a lot of unpleasant historical evidence for what happens when a movement like that like appears from the outside to have been debunked. And there's plenty of those narratives where they circle the wagons and things get even more intense. That's right. And if you read the history of it, you realize that it's fascist and you see the symbols, right? And then a bunch of people tell you, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Right. So what is, what ethos do you have? You know, like Donald Trump, his dad was arrested at a Klan rally. He does not have the authority to tell me whether or not what he's saying is racist or not. So it comes with authority. And I know that myself, being a white guy, I bring all that to the fore too, right? When people first see me, I'm 6'2", 200 pounds, white guy. I look like the man. But of course, am I? I don't know. I hope I'm not the man. Well, you're certainly the man who is the author of smuggling elephants through airport security. That's right. I have that authority. 
Before we go, Brad, I wonder, you know, you've mentioned a few times your sort of consumption habits, uh, your, your interest in, in culture more broadly. Anything that you've been reading, watching, listening to of late that's tripped your trigger? Well, I've been trying to read Carolyn Forche's book, but it's so raw, that living raw. I don't know if I can read that right now. I just did the, what was it? Uh, the Hunger Games trilogy. Just, again, to understand what people are talking about. Do I feel closer to those people in Myanmar? Yeah. Doing The Sopranos, going back. In terms of poetry, I've been enjoying some Ellen Bass poetry and some Anita Skeen poetry. And then I've just been doing a lot of Spotify. Going back to the 90s, Riot Girl. Like, that's the most... I'm listening to L7, Bikini Kill. I want to tear down the man and throw dirty tampons at him. Like that's the moment for me right now. A lot of clash pixies, God save the queen. Yeah. Some angry, like angry music. Well, I mean, I think we'll look forward to those things making an appearance in your next collection. Right. So the question is, do they create angry poems or sad poems? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I, I hope that uh, we'll find out soon. I don't know. It's hard to produce poetry in a pandemic. I haven't written anything. Really? No. Who cares? The world is over. Am I going to just <laughs> hold up a haiku? <laughs> this, I saw I saw the other day that Wisala Simborska, when asked, uh, why didn't you publish more? She said, because I have a trash can here in my home. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> Right. God forbid you become that. And I think that's what happens. Like, that's the thing with social media. It's like you have one thing and then people are ha- then they have interest and you just produce garbage to give them something. Just to keep Ugh. feeding the beast. Right. Well, and I think you can take your time too. you know, you know, so you didn't write anything during the pandemic. There'll be plenty of time for that afterward. And frankly, the things that come out of that sustained concentration and, and attention are going to be more valuable than whatever, you know, is, is vomited forth in immediate response to the moment or to the news. Well, and we have lived through such an absurd existence. I mean, the last year has been World War III in many ways. And it's so absurd and ridiculous and funny. We've got a half a million dead Americans and it's tragic, but there has been a, I mean, this Matt, I'm in Florida, Matt Gates is hysterical. So there has been poetry, but again, like I can't produce anything that would represent this last year. Like it's a Philip Dick novel. So I think the, the, the smartest thing for artists right now is not produce anything. Like you don't want to be governor Cuomo and in the middle of a pandemic, start writing a book on leadership, dude, that's not leadership. <laughs> Well, I think, Brad, I think we should probably uh, leave it there. I'm so happy to have a conversation with smart people. It's been such a long time. Doing this online class is not the same thing. So I've really enjoyed this and appreciate the time you've taken with me. Yeah, I I have really appreciated it too. And I hope that, uh, you know, though you say that there isn't new work immediately on the horizon, folks will get a sense from this conversation of how much great work there is um, in smuggling elephants through airport security and Uh, in your other work. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I hope that this helps sells it. People should be buying poetry because the truth is there. Yeah, indeed. Hear, hear. 
Brad's book, Smuggling Elephants Through Airport Security, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. Thank you.